Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you for joining today's webinar on charitable giving basics for estate planners. My name is Cassandra Prince, and I am an associate in the private client department at Nutter, McLennan & Fish. And I'm joined by my colleague, Christina Dawson, who is of counsel in the private client department also at Nutter, McLennan & Fish. The objective of today's webinar is to introduce, to, to introduce tools to help you advise your charitably inclined clients and to help your clients achieve their charitable goals in a tax efficient manner. Throughout this webinar, we'll be answering three questions. First, why might my client consider making a charitable gift? Second, why, what type of property should be used to, to make a charitable gift? And three, which technique will achieve my client's charitable goals? Before I begin, one housekeeping item. Uh, if you have any questions, as Noah uh, mentioned earlier throughout the presentation, please enter them in the Q&A function. Christina and I have allotted some time at the end of the presentation to answer questions. So to start, why might your client consider making a charitable gift? So your client may wish to make a charitable gift because maybe they want to make a philanthropic impact. Your client, the donor, may, may wish to support a cause or an organization they care about, or they want to make an impact in the community and to promote, to promote excuse me, welfare of others. Your client may also be interested in doing some legacy planning. So maybe they wish to bequeath some property to specific organizations or causes to pres preserve uh, their name. And, and that can come in the form of naming a building, for instance, after a donor or drafting a legacy to preserve the donor's values during their life and after death. Maybe they wish to set up a family foundation that involves multiple generations in giving or administration. Or they're interested in setting parameters for a scholarship fund, for instance, to ensure that it is used for a cause that aligns with their values. Another reason for making a charitable gift is your client maybe wishes to reduce income taxes during their life by getting a deduction from income taxes for charitable contributions. So section 170 of the tax code provides that individuals get an itemized income tax deduction for lifetime charitable gifts based on the gift's value. There is a requirement, however, that the charitable gift must be a transfer of money or property to a permissible donee that is both voluntary and without receipt of economic consideration or benefit, and that it is in proper form. I'll define what a permissible donee is a, a little later in the presentation. There are, however, charitable deduction limitations a taxpayer can have in one year with respect to reducing income taxes. So if you'll, uh, we had sent a, um, handout, if you scroll to the very bottom of your handout, you'll see a chart with details about those limitations. So the, the value that can be deducted um, varies according to the organization's type and the type of property that is contributed. So as you can see on the chart, there are different types of property on the left-hand side. So there's cash, publicly traded stock, gifts of property other than cash and, and publicly traded stock. And you'll also see that the deductions are subject to ceilings of 60%, 30%, or 20% of the donor's adjusted gross income. If a donor makes any excess contributions, uh, it can carry forward four or five years. In other words, if a donor reaches the deduction limit in the year that a charitable gift is made, then the remaining unused deduction may be used in subsequent years for up to five years. With respect to the different types of property that can be gifted, uh, different types of property can be combined, um, but cash is, 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 there's a hierarchy. So cash is deducted first and then the other property. Uh, it's a, 
it's a relatively complex hierarchy. So it's important, you know, you know, when you're sort of counseling your clients on this to become familiar with the rules uh, in section 170 of the code. You'll notice some additional points at the bottom of the chart. So there are some special rules regarding property with short-term and long-term capital gains. So for for short-term capital gain property, 50% of the adjusted gross income is the maximum annual deduction. And the value that can be deducted is limited to to the cost basis. And then for long-term capital gain property, 30% of the adjusted gross income is the maximum annual deduction. However, a person may elect to deduct based on the cost basis, in which case 50% of the adjusted gross income would be the maximum annual deduction amount. There is a special rule for appreciated tangible property. So if tangible property is related to a public charity's tax exempt purpose, 30% of the adjusted gross income is the maximum annual deduction. And the value that can be deducted is the fair market value of of the property. And if a tangible property is unrelated to the charity's tax exempt purpose, the value that can be deducted is is the cost basis. So going back to permissible donee, what is a permissible donee? Uh, Permissible donee is a qualified charitable organization under Section 501c3 of the tax code. Some examples of charitable organizations are public charities. So that consists of churches, schools, hospitals, governmental units, and organizations that derive a significant percentage of support from the general public under Section 509A1 of the tax code or uh, organizations that receive a contribution of of gifts, grants, and fees for exempt services under Section 509.82 of the tax code. Or it could be a supporting organization uh, as defined uh, in the tax code, which is a a charity that carries out its exempt purposes for providing support to other tax exempt organizations under Section 509.83 of the code. Another example is a donor advised fund. So donor advised fund is a charitable giving vehicle sponsored by public charity. A donor receives an immediate charitable deduction upon a contribution to a donor advised fund. Same rules apply as a, as a public charity. Private foundation is another example. So private foundation is an entity with a tax exempt status that does not qualify as a public charity, private foundations conduct active charitable operations or functions as a pass-through entity for uh, contributions to public charities. For private foundations, a person can deduct, you'll see on the chart, a a maximum of 30% of uh, their adjusted gross income for cash in short-term capital gain property. And for long-term capital gain property, a person may deduct a maximum of 20% of their adjusted gross income. A split interest vehicle is another example, also known as a charitable remainder trust. With respect to a split interest vehicle, the extent of a donor's uh, deduction depends on the type of property uh, contributed, contributed excuse me, to the charitable remainder trust and the type of uh, remainder beneficiary. So for example, if a charitable remainder trust is funded with cash and remainder goes to a public charity, then up to 60% of that adjusted gross income may be deducted. If a charitable uh, remainder trust is funded with appreciated property and remainder goes to a public charity, then up to 30% of the adjusted gross income can be deducted. And if a charitable remainder trust is funded with cash and remainder goes to a private foundation, uh, up to 30% of the adjusted gross income may be deducted. With foreign organizations, they're generally not deductible for income tax purposes, but tax treaties may provide an exception to this rule, to its general rule. So for example, um, the US-Canada Income Tax Treaty and the US-Mexico Income Tax Treaty provide some income tax benefit to donors who satisfy certain requirements. As counsel for your client, you should perform due diligence and confirm that the desired recipient organization qualifies as a permissible donee. 
the IRS's uh, search tool lists organizations whose tax exempt status have been recognized under the 501c3 uh, of the tax code. The IRS also publishes a more informative online searching tool called the um, EOBMF extract um, that you may refer to. A donor may also rely on a, a determination letter. Um, so a letter you often, you know, if you've made any donations you receive after making a donation, um, or they may search, use the search tool um, to, to, to um, as I mentioned, to, to, to verify that or for you to verify that. Lastly, it is important to note when it comes to reducing income taxes during life, the gift must be without receipt of economic consideration or benefit. So an example. So take, for instance, a donor paid $300 to a charitable organization for a ticket to attend a gala fundraising event. The ticket entitles the donor to dinner entertainment, having a fair market value of, let's say, $75. Donor's payment of $300 exceeded the value of the goods and services that they will receive by $225. And so the donor intended to make a gift of the excess to the charitable organization. And so thus the donor will make a contribution, a contribution, a charitable contribution of $225. Another reason for charitable giving is your client may want to reduce estate taxes at death. Uh, testamentary gift is, is a way to uh, reduce estate taxes at death. A testamentary gift is a type of gift that is made in a will or a trust. It is a way for someone to give property or belongings to a charitable organization, for, for instance, after they, they pass away. And this is different from a gift given during lifetime, which is called an inter vivos gift. And so a donor may also make a testamentary gift via beneficiary designation. So um, for example, a retirement account. It is important to note that uh, testamentary gift gives a donor an unlimited charitable deduction. So a donor could completely eliminate the state tax liability with gifts, which is different from income tax gifting. As a reminder, when a person makes a gift during their lifetime, they can get an income tax deduction as we talked about um, beforehand, but that is subject to the limitations that we discussed earlier. And I'll turn it over to you, Christina. All right. No, thanks, Cassandra. Um, and I, I would even add to that and just say, um, you know, for gifts that are made during lifetime, like Cassandra said, you um, uh, the donor is able to get an income tax deduction, um, but they're also able to get that asset that they've contributed out of their um, their gross estate for estate tax purposes. Um, and, you know, same for a testamentary charitable gift. Um, so just something else to, to keep in mind. Um, and so I'll cover um, the final reason we have listed here um, for charitable giving, which is creating an income stream. And first, I want to clarify that creating an income stream is not really a reason for someone to necessarily give to charity, um, but rather these techniques that we've listed here, you know, they might make sense for your clients who are charitably inclined for one of the reasons Cassandra just covered, um, but they also have a need to create an income stream for themselves or a loved one, maybe even a charity, um, or they're looking for a really tax efficient way to pass assets to their loved ones. So these techniques here, these are known as split interest techniques. Um, and as the name implies, the interest in these techniques are, are they're split. So one interest is held by a charitable organization, the other one or more charitable organizations, and the, the other interest is held by non-charitable individuals or entities in some cases. Um, and so split interest vehicles, they allow donors to accomplish really two planning goals. They allow them to make a charitable impact as well as provide a monetary benefit to themselves or and or their loved ones. So we've listed um, the different split interest techniques here. 
And I'll cover some of the more commonly used techniques in a little greater detail towards the end of our presentation if we have time. Um, I don't know if we'll have time to really dive into all of them. So I encourage you to just spend more time learning about these techniques, sort of consider this as an introduction um, to these techniques. Um, but for this list, I'll just move through this pretty quickly. Um, so first we have the Charitable Remainder Trust, also known as a CRT. Um, so it's a split interest vehicle in which the income interest is payable to non-charitable individuals or entities, and the remainder interest is payable to one or more charities. And so the way the CRT works is that it pays an income stream in the form of an annuity, so an annual fixed payment, or a unit trust amount. So that's a percentage of the trust assets each year that are paid out. So it pays that to one or more non-charitable individuals. So this could include a donor, um, it could include a donor spouse, family member, even a friend of the donor. And these annuity payments can be structured or unit trust payments can be structured to last for a set number of years or for the lifetime or, of one or more of the income beneficiaries. And then at the end of the CRT's term, that remainder will pass to one or more charities. So that's the CRT in a nutshell. Charitable gift annuity, um, it's pretty similar to a CRT in that it pays an income stream or an annuity to the donor um, or the donor spouse for a term or for lifetime. Um, and at the end of the term, the remainder goes to charity. One of the differences between the, the charitable gift annuity and the CRT is that you know with the CRT, this is really sort of independently being structured or created by the donor. With the charitable gift annuity, this is a contract that the donor will sign with usually one charitable organization. And so that annuity remainder, when the term of the annuity ends, that remainder is going to pass to that particular charity. Um, and then next up, pooled income fund. So pooled income fund is maintained by a charity and it's actually set up to accept contributions from multiple donors, from one or more individuals. The fund will then invest the contributions that were made to it um, and those investments will generate dividends um, which uh, are paid out as an income stream to the fund contributors. And then when a donor has passed away, the fund will distribute those remaining assets to the, the principal, essentially, to the designated charity or charities. Um, a charitable lead trust or CLT. Uh, I think it's helpful to think about this as really the inverse of the uh, charitable remainder trust or CRT. So with the CLT, the income beneficiary is one or more charities and the remainder beneficiary is one or more non-charitable individuals or entities. So the way the CLT works is that it creates an annuity or income stream for one or more charities for a certain term. And at the end of that term, <clears throat> the remaining assets pass to non-charitable individuals, such as the donor's family members. And then finally, a remainder interest in a resident. So this is where a donor retains a life estate in real estate so that they can continue to uh, reside and use that property during their lifetime but then they, they're giving you remainder to charity. So when they die, that remainder um, interest will pass to, to charity. All right, so now let's turn to the kind of property that you can give away. Um, and really you can give away any type of property. Um, as Cassandra mentioned earlier, the type of property can impact when it comes to lifetime gifts, it can impact um, the amount of income that can be deducted um, for that charitable gift. Um, but generally speaking, you can give away um, different, many different types of property. So starting with cash, it's easy. Uh, so this would include cash, cash-like assets, such as checks. Um, cash is easy to value, of course. And as Cassandra mentioned, it provides um, relatively high income tax benefits. Marketable securities, so this would include um, stocks, bonds, government securities, mutual funds, et cetera. These are also going to be easy to value. 
you know, you can, the, the value is readily accessible by just looking at the market to determine the fair market value of, um, of the asset. And this is also a tax advantage item. Um, it provides an income tax benefit. And especially um, if we're thinking about long-term appreciated property. So I know Cassandra earlier talked about the distinction between short-term uh, appreciated property. So this is property that um, is held for less than a year versus long-term, which is property that's held for more than a year. Um, and the benefit of contributing long-term appreciated uh, you know, marketable securities is that uh, the fair market value can be used. And that essentially eliminates any unrealized gain that the donor had um, in that appreciated security. So they don't have to worry about paying taxes on that gain. So they're able to get that property out of their taxable estate uh, for state tax purposes. They're able to completely eliminate that unrealized gain. They don't have to include that in their taxes. Um, they're able to get an income tax deduction um, and they're able to benefit a charity. So um, a lot of benefits there. Um, and in, in some cases, it may make sense to donate uh, marketable securities that have appreciated, you know, in, in lieu of selling these assets and then donating cash to a charity. You know, again, the donor doesn't have to pay um, capital gain on that appreciation, um, but keep in mind that the income tax limitation would be lower than it would be if the donor were to contribute cash. So it's sort of a balancing act, you know, that really will depend on your client's particular situation. But these are just some factors to keep in mind as you're having these discussions with them. Um, real property, real estate can also be gifted to charity. Um, it might be uh, it might make sense to consider a gift of real real estate when that property has significant long-term appreciation. You know, again, they're able to um, avoid having to pay capital gains tax on that appreciation. Um, where the property is, it's relatively easy for the charity to liquidate. Um, you know, the charity wants to receive that benefit, but maybe they don't have a need to continue to hold on to that real estate. So something that they can easily sell. Um, and, you know, be able to benefit from the proceeds pretty quickly, um, as well as real estate that's mainly debt-free um, to avoid uh, some of the issues that might otherwise arise. Um, so with a gift of real estate, donors able to get that property out of their, their gross estate for estate tax purposes, able to eliminate that unrealized gain, get the income tax deduction, benefit a charity. Um, with real estate, the value is not going to be as readily accessible as it would be with cash or marketable securities. Um, and so the value of that property uh, must be established with a qualified appraisal. And part of that process, um, the title should be checked for defects, but that's something to keep in mind is that an appraisal would be needed um, to uh, to determine the value of the gifted real estate. And there are some additional legal and tax considerations that you'd want to keep in mind. Um, so again, this is really sort of an introduction, um, but you'll want to make sure you're doing more research to make sure everything is being done properly. Closely held securities can also be gifted. So this might be a family business, C-Corp, S-Corp, family limited partnership, limited partnership, and LLC. Um, these interests in these businesses can also be gifted to charity. Um, and similar to what I talked about, uh, you know, if you have a long-term, if your client has a long-term appreciated interest in a business, um, by gifting those interests to charity, they're able to eliminate um, that capital gain. Um, again, with closely held securities, the value is not going to be readily accessible. So the value would need to be established with the qualified appraisal. Um, and so there are many business um, valuation uh, companies out there who would be able to provide this. But that's something else to keep in mind is that an appraisal or valuation of the business would be needed. And um, again, also keep in mind that there are additional legal and tax considerations that um, should be taken into account. Um, all right, so retirement plans. 
And uh, this would include IRAs, 401ks. I'm going to spend a little bit more time here um, just because in, in certain situations, retirement accounts can be really good assets to give to charity. So the reason for that is that generally speaking, money that's invested in a traditional or non-Roth retirement account, it's done so on a pre-tax basis and it becomes taxable when distributions from that account are made. So it's generally tax deferred. Um, but with Roth accounts, um, you know, those generally are not going to be taxed. Those are generally funded with post-tax dollars. And so when withdrawals, distributions are later made, they're generally going to be income tax-free. So uh, if you have a client who has both traditional retirement accounts as well as Roth accounts, you'd want to look to the traditional, um, gifting the traditional accounts first because those Roth accounts have a really nice income tax benefit. So being able to maximize that for the benefit of the donor as well as their family um, is something that's really important. Um, so preferable to look to traditional retirement accounts, not Roth accounts first. So um, I'll, I'll talk about lifetime gifting of retirement accounts and testamentary gifting. Starting with lifetime gifting, um, you know, generally for younger folks, younger clients, especially those with substantial income, it may not make sense to use retirement assets to make lifetime charitable gifts just because of the income tax, tax implications of doing so, pulling money out of that account. Um, but for your clients who are approaching age 70 and a half or over age 70 and a half, I would encourage you to discuss qualified charitable distributions or QCDs with them. Um, the QCD is a really useful and tax efficient technique for charitable giving of retirement assets during lifetime. So a QCD, it allows individuals who are, again, 70 and a half or older to donate a certain amount to one or more charities directly from their uh, IRA. And that contribution can count towards their required minimum distribution for that year. And I apologize about the video. Um, I think we're stable now. Um, and so I think you know, when it comes to understanding QCDs, it might help to uh, just uh, do a really quick review of what a required minimum distribution is, um, RMD. So people who hold traditional or non-Roth uh, retirement accounts, they're required to take RMDs from those accounts annually beginning at age 73. And I know with the Secure Act 2.0, we have some uh, changes with the required beginning date for those required minimum distributions um, that it will change over the next few years. But right now it's age 73. Um, and that's going to be the case even if they don't want or need the funds. They're required to pull them out once they reach that age. And those required minimum distributions are based on the plan owner's age as well as the account balance. Um, but when the uh, plan owner pulls out that required minimum distribution, um, it typically consists of taxable income that gets added to the account holder's uh, gross income for the year. So it, it's subject to income tax. But a QCD, it will enable an individual to fulfill their required minimum distribution for that year by directly transferring funds to, uh, to charity. This year, and there is, there is, generally speaking, there's a cap on how much can be directly uh, contributed to charity in this manner. So there is a cap on how much uh, of a qualified charitable distribution can be given each year. Um, this year, that cap is $105,000. You know, for the past several years, I want to say going back maybe uh, 17, 18 years now, it's been $100,000 has been the limit. Um, but this year, that actually increased to $105,000. Um, and going forward, it's going to be indexed for inflation. So we um, will likely see uh, increases, gradual increases over the year. So something to just keep in mind there. But this year, 2024, uh, $105,000 is the limit for a QCD. And that QCD can be used to uh, support multiple charities, just you know, so long as the sum of those distributions is within that $105,000 limit this year. So um, 
you know, a donor could choose to directly contribute $105,000 to one, one public charity, or they could decide to contribute $35,000 to three different public charities. Um, and since that QCD is transferred directly to the charity, it actually never passes through the hands of the plan owner. The way it works, uh, so thinking about the logistics of this, generally, the plan custodian, so you know, if, if IRA is held at Fidelity or Vanguard, the plan custodian will be able to directly send an electronic transfer or a check from the account to the charity. So it never hits the plan owner's hands. And so it never becomes a part of their, their adjusted gross income. So it's essentially an income tax-free uh, withdrawal from their, their IRA. Um, and, and so they don't have to include that in their gross income for the year. And also, um, you know, because it doesn't increase their, their income, they don't have to worry about uh, being subject to, you know, potentially to higher uh, income tax brackets. They may be able to avoid certain phase outs. Um, so it can be really beneficial. Um, and of course, you know, if the plan owner's RMD required minimum distribution is greater than $105,000, they'll still be required to withdraw the balance of their RMD. You know, so let's say a plan owner needs to take out an RMD of $205,000. Um, they do a QCD of $105,000. They still need to pull out that extra $100,000 for the year to satisfy their required minimum distribution um, requirements. And they could in turn gift that balance, that $100,000 to charity, but it wouldn't be considered a QCD because they've already exceeded that limit or, or met that limit. Um, so in that case, that $100,000, it would be added to their adjusted gross income um, and they would need to rely on a charitable deduction you know, from the income tax to realize an income tax benefit for that gift. So a few really important things to, to keep in mind with respect to QCDs um, is that they can only be made from IRAs. So you, 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 a donor can't make a QCD from a 401k or an employer-sponsored plan. Um, so you know your client may need to roll over 401k funds into an IRA to enable them to be able to make QCDs. Um, another requirement is that QCDs can only be made to a public char charity, <clears throat> excuse me, and that does not include a donor advice fund um, or a private foundation. And so a QCD cannot be made to a donor advice fund or a private foundation, only a, a public charity. Um, but keep in mind that Secure Act 2.0 gave us one uh, exception to this rule. And it provides that um, a donor can make a once in a lifetime uh, gift or QCD to a split interest vehicle. Uh, so like one of the vehicles that we just covered, like charitable gift annuity or uh, charitable remainder trust. Um, this year, there, the limit on that is $53,000. But again, that's something that can be done once in a lifetime, unlike the uh, sort of more traditional QCD, which can be done annually. Um, and so, you know, the takeaway from this is that for your charitably inclined clients who are 70 and a half or older or getting close, approaching 70 and a half um, and have significant retirement balances, I think it's really worth exploring whether uh, setting up sort of an annual QCD plan might you know make sense for, for their situation. All right, so moving on to testamentary gifts of retirement accounts. This is something I also wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about because this can also provide a really nice income tax benefit, in this case, to the donor's beneficiaries. So when it comes to inherited retirement accounts that are you know, payable um, to the donor's uh, beneficiaries, um, their non-Roth accounts, they have income tax and income tax liability sort of baked in to those inherited accounts. This is in the form of income in respect of a decedent or IRD. And so what that means is those beneficiaries, as they are pulling money from that inherited account, they're going to uh, have to include that in their, in their income taxes, um, pay income taxes on it. Um, and you know, again, turning to the SECURE Act, um, you know, as we know, 
for most non-spousal beneficiaries, they're required to liquidate those inherited retirement accounts within 10 years of the plan owner's death. So that's a really short period um, during which they have to pay the taxes on that inherited account. So really, the SECURE Act really accelerated um, their payment of the income taxes on those accounts. And so making a testamentary gift of retirement accounts, it allows a donor to essentially divert that income tax liability from their loved ones, their beneficiaries, to a charity. And a charity doesn't pay any income taxes, so they don't mind. Um, And so that testamentary gift of retirement assets, it can be structured by naming a charity on beneficiary designation or providing for the account to pass a charity via a trust. Um, Generally, the beneficiary designation is going to be the preferred method, um, but you may need to incorporate a trust uh, for some more complex planning. Um, But I like the idea of using a beneficiary designation um, just because I think it keeps things simple and clean. Um, And, you know, again, consider using traditional accounts before Roth accounts, um, just because Roth accounts are income tax-free, even to um, beneficiaries, uh, the donor's beneficiaries. So um, maximize the amount that's passing to them, if that's their goal, if their goal is to provide a nice income tax-free gift to to their their loved ones. All right. So turning to another type of property, it can be gifted to charity, life insurance. Um, So life insurance can be gifted to charity. And Generally, the value of uh, the the policy for uh, deduction purposes is going to depend on whether the policy is paid up or not. So if the policy is paid up, it's the replacement cost. If the policy is not paid up, then it's going to be the ITR, Interpolated Terminal Reserve, ITR, um, plus any unearned premium and accrued dividends. Um, And so for gifting, life insurance can be done during life or it can be done as a testamentary gift during lifetime. Um, The donor would transfer a policy outright so the charity becomes the owner and the beneficiary. Donor will receive an income tax deduction, again, for the policy's um, fair market value. And that will, of course, also reduce the size of the donor's gross estate for estate tax purposes. Then with the testamentary gift, this can be accomplished by designating a charity as beneficiary on the beneficiary designation for the life insurance policy. Doesn't give an income tax deduction, but it does reduce the size of the uh, taxable estate. And then uh, finally, tangible personal property. Um, So artwork, collectibles, books, uh, cars, planes, um, et cetera. So donation of tangible personal property during life allows a donor to take a charitable deduction for income uh, tax purposes and a gift at death would uh, provide an estate tax benefit. Um, Generally with tangible personal property, a a qualified appraisal would be needed. Um, And there are certain IRS requirements. So again, this is something else that I would encourage you to become familiar with. Uh, just to make sure you're satisfying all of the requirements um, when you're helping your clients get uh, tangible personal property to to charities. Um, All right, and then I will talk about a little bit about uh, the value that's deductible. Though Cassandra spent some time talking about this um, already. And so that's the distinction between being able to take the fair market, being able to use the fair market value um, to uh, value a charitable contribution versus using a basis. Um, generally speaking, fair market value will be used for long-term gain assets that are held for one year or more. Um, so if you know, your client donates XYZ uh, stock to their favorite charity and they own these shares for five years prior to the gift, they're going to be able to have the option to use the fair market value um, as of the date of that gift for the purpose of valuing a charitable deduction. But if they only held on to that stock for eight months before they gifted it to charity, um, then they would be required to uh, use the basis, their their cost basis. So you know their purchase price um, of that stock uh, for valuing uh, for the purposes of the charitable deduction. Um, And then uh, just one last thing I want to talk about um, in this section is substantiation. 
Um, and so, you know, earlier Cassandra mentioned the importance of due diligence and the onus is really on the donor or as uh, counsel to the donor. Um, you know, we need to help our donors, under, our, our clients understand um, these requirements. And so substantiation um, is another requirement. Um, but the onus is on the donor to prove that a charitable contribution meets the criteria for a deduction. Um, and uh, I think Cassandra mentioned that there are some IRS resources that can be used um, to just confirm you know, whether an organization falls within Section 501c3. And this is something, you know, in, in my practice, um, this is something that I do on a regular basis. So going to guidestar.com or the IRS's website um, when uh, I have a client who's interested in making a gift um, to charity, you know, whether that's something they're looking to do now or language that they want to add to their will or their trust, you know, I'm 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 going through that process of confirming that those organizations are qualifying uh, charities. Um and on the handout, we've provided a couple links um, to articles that our team has written over the years um, on the uh, substantiation requirements for different types of property that are that that are gifted. Um, so we have a separate article for cash, a separate one for property. I'm not going to go too deep into that now. I would just encourage you to take a look at those. Um, and I didn't list it on the handout, but you uh, might also consider visiting um, one of the IRS publications. So this is IRS publication uh, 1771, and it's uh, it provides a detailed uh, overview of the substantiation and disclosure requirements. So again, that's IRS publication 1771. Um, all right, so now we will spend the last few minutes talking about uh, different charitable giving vehicles. So I'll turn it over to Cassandra to get us started. Thanks, Christina. So one example of a charitable giving vehicle is, is making outright lifetime gifts. Um, one option of uh, outright lifetime gift is what is called a bunching strategy, um, where you're sort of concentrating deductions in a single year and then skipping one or even several years. Um, this strategy can work well when a donor's uh, total itemized deduction for a single year fall below the standard reduction, excuse, excuse me, the deduction. And charitable contributions for several years made at once may allow the total of the itemized deductions to exceed the standard deduction, um, which makes it possible to obtain a tax deduction for at least part of your charitable contributions. This strategy requires having the financial capacity to pack more than one year worth of your contributions into a single year. This can also be an imp impactful strategy for donors experiencing a high income year. So it's a great um, vehicle um, there, if if that's if that's something that your client is experiencing, um, a, a note on the 2024 standard deductions. So in 2024, the standard deduction has uh, increased. So um, for this year, 14,600 is the standard deduction amount for single filers and for those filing separately. And uh, for those ma married filing jointly, that amount is 29,200. And for heads of house household, um, that standard deduction amount is 21,900. It is also important to note that the standard deduction is only higher temporarily. So it has increased from 2023 um, to 2024, but because of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that will be sunsetting in 2026, bunching may not um, be as useful in the future. So it's important to, to keep an eye on, it, on, on that. Another charitable giving vehicle could be pledges. And so uh, pledge is when a donor promises to give a certain amount of money to an organization over a set amount of time, whether a charitable gift is legally a legally enforceable contract depends on the specific language in the pledge document and also subject to applicable state uh, contract law. 
um, to be an enforceable to be enforceable as a contract, the charity must establish that there was a promise to give the property to the charity and the promise was supported by consideration or reliance. And another uh, vehicle is, or bequests, uh, which we sort of talked about earlier. Um, so you can uh, make a bequest via testamentary gift. Uh, so as a refresher, testamentary gift is a gift made in a will and a will or a trust. And so a donor may, may direct that their trustees at a trust or a personal representative in their will to fulfill any outstanding uh, pledges at death, for instance. I'll turn it over to you, yeah. Christina. All right, great. Thanks, Cassandra. Um, so private foundations. And first, let me just comment on um, the fact that we don't have any questions yet. So I know we're nearing <laughs> the end of the presentation. So um, if you all have any questions, I would encourage you to um, go ahead and enter those in the Q&A box. Um, and we've set aside some time, so we'll address those. Um, but yeah, I would encourage you to go ahead and get your questions in. Um, all right. So turning to private foundations, um, uh, another charitable giving vehicle. Um, and that we've already talked about a little bit, um, and as Cassandra mentioned earlier, you know, essentially every charity qualifies that qualifies for tax exempt status under 501c3 is deemed to be a private foundation unless it meets one of the definitions of a public charity under 509a. Um, that's a technical definition of a private foundation. Um, but in practice, private foundation, it can be an operating foundation, which would be similar to a public charity in that it's it's really sort of carrying out an operation or an activity for a charitable purpose. Or it can be a non-operating uh, foundation, which I think in simplest terms, you know, it's really an investment account from which grants are made to other charitable um, entities. Could be grants could be made to individuals. Um, um, but that's that's sort of an, an overview of the definition of a private foundation. Um, the private foundation can be organized as a corporation or it can be organized as a trust. Um, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of one or the other, um, but uh, I would encourage you uh, to you know just spend some time thinking about um, you know what makes the most sense for your clients who are interested in creating a private foundation. Um, there are uh, annual filing requirements in either case. So there are filing requirements with the IRS. Um, an annual income tax return must be uh, prepared uh, to form 990PF. Um, if it's formed as a corporation, there will also you know, likely be annual corporate filings. All of this becomes part of the public record. Um, private foundations are subject to different excise taxes. So um, there are, I'll just quickly go through the different excise taxes, um, but this is really more of a, a, you know, introduction to the different excise taxes that could apply just to help with issue spotting when it comes to private foundations. And so um, there's a payout requirement uh, that private foundations are subject to, so they must distribute 5% um, of the net value um, of the private foundation annually, otherwise they're subject to an excise tax. Um, uh, there's a small, relatively small excise tax that must be paid on the private foundation's net investment income. Um, there are self-dealing transactions that are you know, generally forbidden, um, and this will be transactions between a private foundation and their, um, their main contributors or other disqualified persons. And so, um, you know, transactions, simple transactions, uh, like sale of property or furnishing of goods, um, those are going to be prohibited um, if, if done between a disqualified person and a private foundation. Um, and if that is done, then there will be an excise tax, a really, really punitive um, excise tax that would apply. And I think this is really important because I, it can really be easily uh, violated the self-dealing rules. So just something to you know, really be aware of. Um, they should also be aware of the excess business holding rules. So generally speaking, a private foundation is not able to own an excess of 20% of a business. Um, and so if you have a client who's interested in gifting uh, shares, you know, of a closely held business um, to a private foundation, make sure you're familiar with the business, the excess business holding rules. It 
could potentially still be done, but uh, you need to make sure it's structured in a way that uh, will not cause um, the private foundation to violate the excess business holding rules because the, the excise tax that would apply was also pretty punitive. Um, taxable expenditures, um, a private foundation will have to pay tax on taxable expenditures. So these are distributions for purposes that are not charitable. Um, and then finally jeopardizing investment. So if um, a an investment will jeopardize a private foundation's ability to carry out its exempt, exempt purposes, um, then uh, there will also be an excise tax that will apply. Generally speaking, there's uh, uh, a lot of administrative work that goes into running a private foundation. Um, included included among that is um, exercising expenditure responsibility. Um, so essentially having oversight over a grant, how that charity, the grantee is using um, that grant money, um, prudently investing the assets. Uh, but with the private foundation, the donor will get an immediate income tax or state tax deduction, depending on when it's gifted during lifetime or at death. Um, but the funds can grow over time and can be used to uh, benefit charities over time, potentially many different benefits, um, many different charities. Um, a private foundation can be used to create a charitable legacy for the donor's family. And this is something that the donor's children and grandchildren, you know, would be able to manage um, potentially long after the donor is gone. All right. And then. Um, there are two more things I want to I want to make sure we cover. Um, so donor advice funds, I'll cover that quickly, and then I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the um, distinctions between a donor advice fund and private foundation when to consider one or the other. Um, so donor advice fund, um, it's a, essentially a separate investment fund that's maintained by a public charity. Charity is known as a sponsoring organization. So the donor will contribute assets to the fund and the sponsoring organization will in turn have legal control over those funds. So that sponsoring organization, you know, think about like Fidelity or Vanguard or Charles Schwab. They will have control. They'll be able to choose the investment strategy, though they might give the donor some options um, and they'll determine, they have the right to determine how those funds will be granted to charities. Um, but the donor becomes the advisor with respect to that fund, that donor advice fund, hence the name, um, and they can recommend grants to eligible public charities. The sponsoring organization is not required to follow through with the donor's recommendations, but of course, it's good business for them to do so. If they want to maintain their donor advice fund business, then um, uh, so long as a donor's recommendation is uh, to an eligible club public charity, they're most likely going to follow through with that. Um, like I said, sponsoring organizations can include national funds like Vanguard, Fidelity, Charles Schwab. It could also include um, a community foundation. Um, there are also faith-based institutions that uh, sponsor donor advice funds. Uh, with the donor advice fund, the donor will get an immediate income tax um, or a state tax deduction, depending on whether it's given during lifetime or death. Um, but similar to a private foundation, those funds can grow over time and can be used to you know, distribute assets to potentially to many different charities um, over time. So it also provides an opportunity for the donor to create a legacy by naming successor advisors. Um, so you know, donor is generally going to be the initial advisor to that donor advice fund, but they can name successor advisors. You know, they could potentially, you know, maybe name their children um, as these successor advisors. So when they're gone, their children would then be in um, that advisor role, making recommendation, grant recommendations to um, the sponsoring organization. Um, it can also be used in combination with the bunching strategy that Cassandra just uh, mentioned. Um, so the bunching gift uh, that consolidated gift could be given to a donor advice fund. Um, and then it still gives a donor the opportunity to regulate the gifts of the charity. If they don't want that charity to receive you know, a larger gift in one year, they can still control the flow um, of that gift to the charity over several years, potentially. All right. So last, just uh, want to do a quick overview of a donor advice fund compared to a private foundation. So the donor advice fund, it's relatively quick and easy to set up. You can often do this online. 
uh, you know, go to a sponsoring organization's website, create a donor advice fund, electronically transfer funds to it, um, get the immediate uh, income tax um, deduction. Um, it's much less administrative work involved compared to a private foundation. And I mean, in fact, there really are no administrative responsibilities um, beyond making grant recommendations. Um, but keep in mind that there are going to be most likely um, investment and administrative fees that will be charged by the sponsoring organization. Um, unlike a private foundation, a donor advice fund does not have required annual distributions. Um, but the sponsoring organization might have a requirement that um, some activity um, occur in that in that donor advised fund. But legally speaking, there's not a requirement under the tax code that anything be distributed um, each year. Um, and the donor with the donor advised fund, donor doesn't need to worry about excise taxes um, like uh, they would with a private foundation. Um, and there's also a higher charitable income tax deduction for gifts to the donor advised fund compared to the private foundation. So the private foundation, um, the I'd say the primary benefits are going to be control um, and family involvement. So control the donor, the family are able to control the foundation's investments and grants. It's not limited to uh, just grants to public charities like you have with the DAF. Uh, Grants could be made to individuals in the form of a scholarship. Grants could even be made to um, foreign uh, charitable organizations, um, something that can't be accomplished generally with the DAF. And family involvement, you know, I think like Cassandra mentioned earlier, um, with the private foundation, there's an opportunity for family engagement um, with the administration, management, uh, grant making, um, also provides an opportunity for education of the you know, later generations about philanthropy um, and investments. Private foundation can, can even hire um, family members. So, um, so that control and family involvement, I'd say those are the primary benefits of a private foundation over the donor advice fund. Otherwise, it, it's a lot of work uh, just relative to a donor advice fund. It can take months to set it up. Is You'll have to apply for tax exempt status with the IRS. There are many um, fees that will be uh, due at inception when it's initially created. You know, they have to, you, donors will generally have to work with an attorney, you know, maybe an accountant to get it set up. Um, <clears throat> and there are ongoing administrative um, requirements, filings that need to be done. Um, and then, you know, again, keep in mind all of the excise taxes um, that I covered. Um, so pretty strict requirements when it comes to a public foundation that just don't exist from the donor's perspective with respect to a donor advice fund, plus lower income tax deduction for gifts to um, that private foundation. So um, it's the really quick. The takeaway there is, you know, some folks, you know, may be willing to deal with the work of running a private foundation because of that control and family involvement. That's really important to them. Um, you know, maybe they want to be able to hire some family members or set up a scholarship um, program. Those are things that just wouldn't be available with the donor advice fund. Um, but given how much work is involved with running a private foundation, I'd say most planners suggest a threshold funding amount for private foundations. And it will really vary depending on who you talk to because it's somewhat arbitrary. Um, but I think just keeping in mind the amount of work that goes into it, you want to have a substantial uh, amount. Uh, being contributed to that private foundation to justify the work. Um, you know, I've heard some planners recommend $1 million, others recommend $5 million. So again, it really depends. I think it's sort of, sort of a case-by-case -case, um, consideration. Um, all right. So I realize we are almost at time now. Um, and let's see. Looks like one we have question. one question. Okay. I can read the question. I don't know if we have time to answer. <laughs> okay. Quick answer is yes. <laughs> um, could you please confirm in prior years you couldn't deduct charitable gifts on your Massachusetts income tax? This has changed for 2023 and now you can is the question. 
Okay. Yeah. And um, as Cassandra said, yeah, the quick answer is yes. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that, that was a, a nice change. Um, all right. And so I don't think we have any other questions. Um, and so, yeah, I hope this presentation was, you know, a really helpful overview of the reasons why people gift to charity, different assets that can be gifted to charity, and um, sort of an introduction to some of the more commonly used charitable vehicles. Um, but thank you all for joining, um, and thank you for your time. <laughs>